Thanks, John. Thanks to the band for uh, leading us in worship, helping us to praise God together and to focus on God's goodness and his love for us and that great hope and certain hope that we have if we know and love Jesus that one day we'll be with him and be able to praise him forever in, uh, in holiness and in glory with Jesus forever. Now, you should have an outline in your seat if you want to pick up verses uh, that we're looking at this morning, or many of them anyway are, are on there. And uh, if you want to fill that in as we're going along, you can. If it's an, a distraction, just leave it out of the way. That's fine. And uh, the verses that we're looking at will be up on the screen as well. Now, last week we saw how the 12 apostles set up some structures uh, in what was the very first church, that church there in Jerusalem as the church came into being, as the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, as Peter preached and 3,000 responded, and later Peter preached again, and another two or 3,000 responded, and the church grew, and uh, God was doing great things in that first church. But because they grew, they needed to not just keep reaching out to lost people to come to faith in Jesus, but they also needed to help and look after those who were needy in the church. And so they appointed seven men to be those very first deacons in the church. They would serve the church by making sure those that had needs got their daily distribution of food. And one of these seven men was called Stephen. And as well as being busy serving the church in a practical way, making sure that people who, were in, who had practical needs, and particularly the widows who hadn't had any food and hadn't any way to provide for themselves, as well as serving the church in that way, Stephen was also passionate about telling people about Jesus. For Stephen, that was still a cornerstone of his life. So he was engaged in serving the church in a particular way, but he was still passionate about reaching out with the gospel and serving God. And as Stephen told people about Jesus, God called him to perform great miracles. What Luke, who wrote Acts, calls great miracles and, uh, sorry, great wonders and miraculous signs. Acts 6 verse 8 says these words, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. And the Jewish people always looked, throughout the history of the Bible, they always looked to see if a person was sent from God and was empowered by God by seeing if God enabled them to, to carry miracles, to do miraculous things. They were miracles that were called signs because they were a sign that God was with the person and that that person's ministry was authentic, that it was from God, and that they weren't a fraud that God was working through them. And God was doing just that with Stephen. As he preached about Jesus, God demonstrated that he was with him by enabling him to perform something wonders. It was God's mark of authenticity on Stephen's ministry and on Stephen's life. And not just Stephen, but the other apostles also performed signs and wonders. Now you'd think then that the Jews who uh, saw this and were watching and saw these miracles and these signs that were performed by Stephen as he preached and taught about Jesus, you'd think that they would respond to what they were hearing and seeing and accept what Stephen was saying about Jesus. That as God authenticated him as a person and his ministry and his role, that what he then taught about Jesus, they would listen to, would obey. And many did. The church kept on going. It was probably around 7,000, maybe 8,000 people in Jerusalem at that stage. But as the message spread about Jesus and as the church grew, so did the opposition. Acts 6 verse 9 says this, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. They didn't like what Stephen was saying about Jesus, but when they tried to argue with him and debate with him, they weren't able to counter his arguments because the Holy Spirit was giving Stephen the very words to speak. And, it was giving, and the Holy Spirit was giving him the power and the wisdom that he needed to counter their arguments and to persuasively argue. 
And once they realised that they were losing the argument with Stephen, they resorted to other tactics and they decided instead to set Stephen up and to get him executed. An extreme response, but that was what they did. As, as they realised they were losing the argument, they couldn't argue with Stephen. Whether they realised what was behind or the power that was behind Stephen or not, we're not sure, but they couldn't argue with him. And so they decided they'd get rid of him. Look at Acts 6, verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. If they could persuade the Jewish ruling authorities, the Sanhedrin, that Stephen was speaking wrongly or irreverently about God, people of the Bible, Moses in particular, then the punishment for a Jew for that was death, and death by stoning. So look at what they did, verse 13. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, that was the temple that they were in, against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So Stephen was dragged in front of the Jewish religious supreme court, the Sanhedrin, and if he was convicted, he would probably face death. So we're going to read from Acts 6, verse 8, to Acts 7, verse 3, firstly, just to get the setting for this encounter, this great encounter between Stephen and the Sanhedrin. So Acts 6, chapter 8, picking up from where we last week, as the deacons are appointed and the word of God is spreading, then we get into Acts 6, verse 8. And it says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen that they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. And this great speech, this great... Uh, Bible teaching, this great kind of defense of Stephen's argument, and we're going to read it again a bit later, and we're going to read the whole chapter and see what Stephen says. Stephen had been dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, just as Jesus had been, not very long before, and just as Peter and John had been, and we've read that in these last few weeks. And now he found himself having to defend the truth about who Jesus was and what Jesus had accomplished. And what Stephen did was to give a brief overview, it's a long chapter, but it would have been a very brief overview, really, of God's dealings with the, nations of it, with the nation of Israel from when, first God, from when God first appeared to Abraham way back in about 2100 BC, right up until the coming of Jesus. And the charges against Stephen were simply this, that he was attacking the person of Moses, who was regarded as a hugely important figure in Jewish history. Secondly, that he was attacking the law, and the law was that package of rules and regulations that God had given to Moses for the people of Israel to live by, and thirdly, that he was attacking the role of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which was the very place this trial was taking place in. 
as Luke writes the account down in the book of Acts, he doesn't explicitly say, but the reason that they were so outraged at what Stephen had been saying and, and, and were arguing with him and trying to set him up was because of what Stephen had been saying about how a person gets right with God and how a person could live in relationship with God. For the Jews, they believed that they had to keep this law of Moses, this package of rules and regulations that God had given to the nation of Israel through Moses. And many, many Jews sincerely believed that if they kept all the rules, they could get right with God and they could go to heaven. But Stephen had been teaching and preaching that getting right with God wasn't achieved by keeping rules and regulations. Instead, it was achieved by trusting in Jesus. He wasn't attacking Moses, and he wasn't attacking what Moses did. Quite the opposite. He would have been saying that Moses was God's prophet. And the law of Moses was a good thing, because it helped the nation of Israel live the way that God wanted it to live. But the law, the problem with the law, for the people of Israel and for everybody, the problem with the law was that it exposed people's sin. The rules and regulations given by God simply exposed the fact that the nation of Israel, and in fact every single person, every person in mankind, was sinful and couldn't keep God's rules. The, the law was put there, and everybody, when they compared themselves to it, realized that God's standard was perfect, and everybody in the matter fell short of God's standard. So the law was good, and Stephen was teaching that the law was good, but the problem was we were bad. They were bad. The people were bad. There was a problem with sin. And the law, therefore, showed people not only their badness, but therefore their need of a saviour. That they needed a saviour to come and rescue them and to deal with the law pointed towards the need for Jesus to come. The Bible says this, that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified or, or, or made right with God by faith. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be made right with God by faith. So God gave the Jewish law through Moses, and this is what Stephen would have been teaching, and this is what would have infuriated the Sanhedrin. God gave the Jewish law through Moses and part of the reason for that was to show people their inability to keep the law because of their sinfulness. The law showed people that they needed someone to reach down and rescue them, to save them from the inevitable punishment that would come for people and for their sins because of God's holiness. So the law demonstrated the need for a saviour. And so God sent Jesus when the time had come to live as a man and as a man Jesus kept every single one of the requirements of the law. Jesus met the law absolutely completely. He didn't come to abolish it. He says he came to complete it and to fulfill it. And having done so, he then set it aside. And Jesus was the only person who could do that, the only person who could meet every single requirement of the law that God had given through Moses because he was sinless. He was God come in the form of a man. And then when Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for all the times when every single person fails to keep God's perfect standard, of Moses, then because, because Jesus took the punishment from God, we, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and ask him to forgive our sins, not only does God forgive us, but he then gives us the righteousness that belongs to Jesus. When we, as we come to Jesus and when we come to Jesus and put our faith and trust in him, we're justified. In other words, we're made right with God in his sight. Jesus kept the law. Jesus was perfect. He was righteous. And if and when we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, then God gives us the perfection and the rightness, the rightness that Jesus had, and he gives it to us. God is what theologians call imputing God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. God imputes it to us. In other words, 
God thinks of the righteousness, the rightness, the perfection, the holiness, the righteousness of Jesus as belonging to us. It would be a little bit like if I decided one day I would like to be an accountant. Now, anybody who knows me would laugh at that and think that's a little bit silly. I struggled to get a C at GCSE in maths, so accountancy clearly wouldn't be a career for me. But if Paul, one of our elders who is an outstanding accountant, so he keeps telling me anyway, but I'm sure he is, Paul who's met all those requirements, has, has passed all the exams and is a chartered accountant, has got the certificate on his wall to prove it, he's met those standards in every way. If Paul said, Andy, you are rubbish, you can't add up to save your life, you can't add up for toffee, but you know what? I'll give you my certificate, I'll give you my qualifications, and you can be an accountant. You'll still be rubbish, you'll still mess up, you still won't be able to add up, but I'll give you my qualifications, I'll give you my position, because I love you and because I'm going to give you that in place of what you can't do. That's a little bit like what Jesus does. We're never able to keep God's law, God's perfect standard, but Jesus in love gives us what he has kept, what he has achieved, his perfection, his righteousness, and he gives it to us, he imputes it to us. God then thinks of Jesus' righteousness as belonging to us. So Stephen hadn't been attacking Moses. He hadn't been attacking the law. What he'd been doing was teaching and preaching that Moses and the law of Moses pointed towards the need for Jesus to come. The other charge against Stephen was that he'd been verbally attacking the temple. That The Jews believed that God lived in the temple of Jerusalem and largely was confined and constrained to that temple. And that nobody but their high priest could approach God and that he had to offer animal sacrifices and shed the blood of animals for their sins of the people before he could approach God. And this is what the Jews believed. But Stephen had been teaching that when Jesus came, he himself had been the sacrifice and the priest all at once. And Jesus had offered his own life, shed his own blood, and gone into God's presence to represent us. And having done that and having satisfied God and having dealt with our sins, the way for us to come to God and to have a relationship with God was now wide open. And the giant curtain in the temple that separated people symbolically from God and man had been torn in two when Jesus had died. The Bible says, speaking of that moment upon the cross, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Having paid the price for our sins upon the cross, in that moment, in that split second, God in heaven reached down and tore open the way to come into relationship with him. And as Jesus died, having taken the punishment for mankind's failure to keep God's perfect standards, to keep the law, there wasn't any longer any barrier between us and God. There was no barrier anymore for us having a relationship with God. And to prove and demonstrate this, God tore this massive curtain right down the middle to show that all could come to him. Every single one of us could have a relationship with God through Jesus. And the temple was now redundant. All who trusted in Jesus could come into God's presence And Stephen had been teaching and preaching that God wasn't confined to a temple anyway. And as we're going to read in a minute, we'll see that Stephen demonstrated this, that actually the people of Israel right throughout their history had encountered God. He'd revealed himself to them, not just in the temple, but all over the place at different times in history. God wasn't confined to the temple. God was and is omnipresent. Omni just means all. God is present everywhere. So we don't need to go to the temple or to a holy place to encounter God. If we trust in Jesus We can meet with God wherever we are by faith. So Stephen had been teaching, in summary, that if we want to be right with God, if we want to be justified and have a relationship with him, we need to put our faith in Jesus. Write that on your outline. If we want to be right with God and have a relationship with him, we need to put our faith and our trust in Jesus. 
And this morning, if you don't know Jesus as Saviour, if you haven't received the perfection of Jesus, if, if you're still in your sin, God wants you to be freed from your sin. He wants you to be transformed. He wants to give you the righteousness of Jesus. But you need to come to him in faith and accept you're a sinner and accept your need of God as Saviour and give thanks for what Jesus did as he rescued you and as he came and lived and died. So if we want to be right with God, if we want to get right with God and, and sort out our lives, we need to have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. It wasn't and it isn't through keeping rules and regulations and it wasn't and it isn't by going to a special or a holy building like the temple. And this is what Stephen had been teaching, this is what Stephen had been preaching and many Jews had accepted this and had accepted that Jesus was the Messiah that God had been promising to send. Thousands had, but many didn't. And these men who attended this particular synagogue in Jerusalem took great offence at what Stephen was teaching. And so they dragged him into the Sanhedrin where he was put on trial and all of Acts 7 is given over to what Stephen said as he defended himself. So I'm going to ask Claire to come up. It's a long chapter and we're going to read this uh, little bit by little bit together. And what, what basically we have for Stephen, uh, from Stephen here is a survey of God's dealings with the nation of Israel right from 2100 BC. Uh, God revealed himself to Abraham right the way through, right the way down to Jesus. It's not the complete history, it's a survey and it's it's, it's Stephen making his point that he's not attacking Moses, he's not attacking the law, he's not attacking the temple, but he's trying to correct and defend what he's teaching. So Claire's going to read firstly verses 1 to 8 of Acts 7 for us. True. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. At this time, sorry, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. 
For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to look more closely. He heard the Lord's voice. I am the Lord God of your, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the word, who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. The Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but not obeyed by it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelled, at, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. 
Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Now, the points that Stephen was making as he gave this potted history of the nation of Israel was firstly that he had repeatedly revealed himself to key figures in Jewish history separately from the law and separately from the temple. Before the law existed, before the temple was built, he was doing that. When he revealed himself to Abraham, to Joseph and to Moses, he did so when they were in foreign countries. They weren't living under the law and they weren't at the temple. So a relationship with God wasn't and isn't confined to obeying a set of Jewish rules in the law or by going to the temple. And the second point he was making, that those who God revealed himself to had all been rejected at one time or another by the people of Israel. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Moses was, re- was rejected by the people of Israel. Even though, like he, he had performed miraculous signs and wonders. Moses did, yet the people turned away from him and turned against him. And in the many prophets that God spoke to the nation of Israel through, they too were all rejected by the people of Israel in their day. And years later, people would look back and revere them and say, oh, these great prophets. But at the time, the people of Israel had rejected them. So Stephen was simply showing that in rejecting what he was saying, as a prophet marked out and authenticated by God's signs and and wonders, they were simply behaving in the same way all their ancestors had ever behaved. And then Stephen was showing that the Old Testament itself taught that God doesn't live in a temple. He's not confined to a building. And that a relationship with him isn't only possible through the temple. Ultimately, it's possible through the Messiah. But the Jewish leaders didn't like what he was saying. And having delivered his defense, Stephen says these words to them. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, you, you go through these outward displays of obeying the law, but your hearts are cold, your hearts are dead, your hearts don't want to know God. You are just like your ancestors, he says. You always resist the Holy Spirit like all the people who come before them and every time their ancestors had resisted the Holy Spirit through the prophets and through the different people that come, they were just doing exactly the same thing. And God had enabled Stephen to perform signs and wonders as a proof that God was working through him, but they rejected him just as they rejected Jesus. And they behaved just like their ancestors had, rejecting the people that God had raised up in the nation of Israel and spoken through. Look at what he says, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Right throughout Jewish history, people and prophets had predicted the coming of the righteous one, who was Jesus, the Messiah, but even they had been put to death. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. They were priding themselves in the law and their obedience to the law, but they weren't even keeping it, says Stephen. And when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were absolutely furious. They were incredibly angry because God, through Stephen, was was touching right at the core of their being. God was cutting right to their heart. And Luke says they gnashed their teeth at Stephen. not quite sure what a gnashing of teeth looks like. I'm not going to try and demonstrate that. But, But they were furious. They were mad at him. And they were boiling over with anger and fury at what he was saying. But as if to underline what he was saying, to make the point... God at that very moment gave Stephen a vision of heaven. God enabled Stephen to look into heaven and to see what was going on up there. Verse 55 says this, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. 
and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The vision, the vision that Stephen shares with the Sanhedrin is that he is seeing at that very moment the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And the Son of Man was a title that Jesus used of himself and it's used in the Bible to describe Jesus. And it was a title that the Jews understood from the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah, to God's special king. This was hugely explosive. This was hugely inflammatory to the people who were listening to Stephen. Stephen was telling them that at that very moment, God was allowing him to see into heaven itself. And he was allowing him to see that Jesus, the one that they had murdered just a few weeks earlier, the one that they had rejected, that they had put to death, was actually standing in the place of power. And he was in the place of authority at God's right hand, ready to judge them. The title, Son of Man, is always refers to God's judgment and Jesus' role in judging mankind. So in other words, Jesus was who he said he was. They had killed him and now he was ready to bring judgment on those who rejected him. And for the men who were listening to him, this was just way too much. Simply too much. And they covered their ears and, and Luke writes that they yelled so they couldn't hear him. And they rushed at him. They dragged him out of the temple and out of the city and they stoned him to death. Verses 59 to 60 tell us this. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. They'd seen the signs and wonders that he'd performed, the ones that God had empowered him and enabled him to do, authenticating him, validating him, proving that he was from God. They'd heard him show from the Old Testament itself that they were wrong and that what he was teaching and preaching was right and what the other apostles were teaching and preaching was right. But they rejected him and they rejected his message. And in doing so, they rejected the gospel and they rejected God. And what a contrast. Because just in the previous chapters, we see Peter preaching and we see thousands of people gladly accepting what, Jesus, what, what Peter and, and John were saying and people trusting in Jesus and becoming Christians. They were, but hearing that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God's chosen king, God come as a man, they'd accepted that Jesus had died for them, that he'd risen from the dead, that he was ascended in heaven, they'd repented of their sins, and they'd embraced him, and they'd, and they'd begun to follow Jesus. But this group of men were different. What a contrast with those who accepted. It's a mystery, isn't it? This group of men rejected everything that Stephen said. When Peter preached his sermon, thousands responded and trusted in Jesus. When Stephen preached, presumably many did respond and many did follow Jesus. That's why the Sanhedrin were angry because of the following that was taking place. But this powerful and this important group of men didn't. And in fact, their rejection of the gospel led them to murder Stephen. They weren't just rejecting what Stephen said. They had him put to death. That's the most outright, complete rejection of a person that's possible, isn't it? It's really important that we grasp what's going on here. The book of Acts is the record of how the church began. It's, it's often called the church that turned the world upside down. And in the space of a, of a few short weeks and then months and years, the church spread and grew and spread right over Europe. And the whole of the Roman Empire was turned upside down as the gospel was preached, the good news about Jesus was preached, as churches were planted and people began to follow Jesus. But it wasn't straightforward or easy. It wasn't just a continuous line of growth. It wasn't just a joyous kind of situation where every time the people preached, people trusted in Jesus. Sometimes that happened with great responses. Other times it was the complete opposite. This was the first murder of a Christian. Stephen was the first martyr. 
And after he died, and we're going to see this next week, the Jews began to systematically persecute the church. And in fact, the church is scattered. They have to run for their, flee for their lives. And Christians were scattered all over the region. And then in later years, in the later decades of the first century, the Roman authorities would do the same. And as the church began to spread, the Roman authorities began to systematically pursue, uh, persecute Christians. Many, many followers of Jesus would lose their lives. Some accepted the gospel, some, perhaps many, rejected it. And we need to understand that this is still the case today. Peter saw a great response. We'd love to be like Peter, wouldn't we? We'd all love to be like Peter. We'd love to see when we preach or when we share the gospel with our friends that people gladly accept what we're saying and accept Jesus. Stephen, on the other hand, was murdered. He wasn't just rejected. He wasn't just ignored. He was actually put to death for what he was saying. See, some people will accept what we say when we share the good news. Others will reject what we say and will even reject us. The Bible says these words, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The message we preach is the message that Stephen was preaching, that we all need to get right with God through putting our faith and our trust in Jesus. And that message of a saviour who had died on a cross under the curse of sin is a stumbling block to Jews and it was then and it still is today. Jews cannot accept a Messiah who was crucified. And Gentiles, that's everybody else in the world who's not a Jew, for them the idea of a saviour, of, of someone that would be someone that we would worship being a man on a cross is foolishness. It doesn't make any sense to them. So to Jews it's a stumbling block. They can't that Messiah would be crucified. They believed and they were looking for a Messiah who would be king and rule and reign. And Jesus one day will be that. But first he had to die. And for Gentiles, for the rest of the people in the world, it's foolishness. The gospel, the concept, so often is foolishness to people. The gospel message, however, is good news to those who will humble themselves and accept that they're sinners and need to be saved by Jesus. But if a person refuses to accept, to accept that they're a sinner and that they need a saviour, that they need to, to submit their lives to Jesus and make him their Lord, then the gospel message is offensive. Nobody likes being told that they're a sinner. We don't like being told. We know we're sinners. If we follow us, we know we're sinners, but we still don't like anybody else reminding us when we go wrong or when we mess up. The world around us, nobody wants to hear that they're a sinner. Nobody wants to hear that they have to submit, humble themselves to somebody else. Nobody likes to submit to anybody. That's sin. And as sinful humans, we all instinctively want be in charge of our own lives, don't we? We don't, we don't want to hand our lives over to somebody else and surrender our lives to somebody else, especially God. But that is what the gospel demands. And it demands that people accept that they're sinners and that they need to be forgiven and that they need to surrender their lives to Jesus. People don't want to hear that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15, Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. So those who accept our message, the message of the good news, the gospel, the message about Jesus, we are the very aroma of Jesus. Those people who accept us and accept the message that we preach and we share and we tell about Jesus, we're like a beautiful smell to them. Not physically, but spiritually. People love because, yeah, we've brought them good news. The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. People who, who hear and accept the message are, love us because we've brought them something that has rescued them. And we are, Paul says, are like a fragrance which rises up and people enjoy us and love what we bring to them. 
when we share the good news with people in our street or in our family or in our workplace or at school, it won't always be like that. Some will accept what we say. They'll receive with great gladness the message of the gospel. It will be like a beautiful smell to them. But some of those we share the gospel with will reject what we have to say and they'll reject us. It will be like a bad smell to them. Nobody wants to be told that they're a sinner. Nobody needs, wants to be told about hell. Nobody wants to be told about their need to submit to God. And not only will they reject our message, but they'll reject us. And Stephen experienced just that, and for him it led to his death. He was a, a bad smell to them. He wasn't a good smell to them. He was a bad smell to them. Now, we're unlikely to ever be put to death for our faith in this country, although millions of Christians worldwide face that, that exact threat even this morning. But we will have many people around us who will reject us and will reject what we say and they'll reject who we are. And that can be distressing and unpleasant, can't it? When you try and share your faith with a friend or with a, someone in our family or someone at work and when they reject the good news that we're trying to share, when they see us as a bad smell, bringing them news and information they don't want to hear, that can be unpleasant and distressing for us. Because not only do they reject our message, but so often they reject us, or it certainly feels as if they're rejecting us. And none of us like to be rejected, do we? We all like to be accepted by people at work. None of us like to stand out. None of us like to be the odd one. None of us want to say to unpleasant or hard or difficult. But the gospel requires, demands that we tell people. If we don't tell people, then they will face a lost eternity in what the Bible calls hell. And we might feel awkward about doing that. Well, who am I to tell this person? What right have I got? We have every right. Not in and of ourselves, but Jesus commands us to do it. And if we don't, nobody else will. So we don't wait for permission. Jesus has given us the permission. And so we need to go and tell people. The temptation can be, and it's so tempting to do this when we face rejection, when we are a bad smell to those around us, to make the message less stark and less direct. So we talk less about God's holiness, we talk less about sin, we water sin down, we make it more appealing, we, we don't talk about hell, we avoid talking about hell, we talk about trusting in Jesus and, and, and feeling better and, and, and being fulfilled and all that kind of stuff. And all that's true, it's missing the heart of the gospel. A holy God, sin, a cross, and the need for repentance. And we often do that so that we're more accepted and less rejected. But we have to stand firm and we have to make sure that as a church and as individuals, the message we share is the true gospel message. Even if it makes us unpopular and causes people to reject us. The reality is that not everybody will want to hear what we have to say. And not everybody will want to come to this church. Some will even come to this church and they'll go again. They'll reject the message and we won't see them again. But we mustn't water down the message that we're sharing or try to make it more appealing or make ourselves more appealing to people. Put barriers in the way of the gospel. The gospel is a stumbling block in and of itself. So we need to get rid of every barrier we can which prevents people coming into contact with the gospel. But the gospel is a stumbling block. It is offensive to people. So write this down. We need to be persistent in spreading the gospel. We need to be persistent in spreading the gospel. People's lives are at stake, at stake here. But that many will reject our message. We need to understand that many people will reject our message and will reject us. The message is life and death. People need to hear the gospel message, but many people in doing so will perceive us as a bad smell. And many people will reject us and will reject the message.
But the great news is this, that even amongst those who do reject us and who reject the gospel, all even then is not lost. Some of those who've been incredibly anti-Christian at one stage in their lives have gone on to accept Jesus as Saviour. And I think we can all think of people that we know, maybe some of you that was even true of, who for a period in life were anti-God, anti-Jesus, anti-Gospel, anti-Christian, just hated that, and yet at some point in their lives have submitted and and trusted in Jesus. Our last verse tells us that Saul, a man who hated Jesus and hated Christians with a passion, was standing there guarding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. The last verse says, And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. But as we'll see in a few weeks, Saul encountered Jesus, a man who hated Jesus, a man who hated Christians with a passion. He lived to lock Christians up and get them killed. And yet he met Jesus and he surrendered his life to him and he followed him and he became one of the key leaders of the church. He wrote most of the New Testament and Saul changed his name Paul. So even amongst those around us that that we're trying to lead to Jesus but who are at the moment opposed to the message that we bring, all is not lost. It won't be easy. It won't be, it'll be difficult trying to share the good news with lots of people. To lots of people, we will be a bad smell. But even amongst those people who seem at the moment to be rejecting us, keep on persisting is my encouragement this morning because all is not lost. All is never lost. Saul, a man who hated Jesus, turned to Jesus and became a Christian. And if Saul can be changed, a man who said, I'm the chief of sinners, I'm the, most, I'm the worst of all people, if he could be saved, then anybody could be saved. So can I encourage you this morning? Keep pressing on, being persistent, sharing this good news. It is the message of life and death. Share the good news with people, but don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if they reject you. And don't water down the message for fear of rejection. It's tempting to do that, but the the very nature of the gospel is at stake. And so we need to stand firm. Stand firm behind the gospel. Preach that faithful biblical truth, and yet be willing and ready to be rejected. But to keep pressing on, because you never know, those who are rejecting us at the moment may yet, and as we pray for them, may yet turn in faith to Christ. Let's just bow our heads for a few moments, shall we? Maybe this morning you've never trusted in Jesus, and this is a moment for you to consider where you stand before him. Will you accept him as your Lord and Saviour? Will you surrender your life? Will you joyfully accept him and acknowledge your sin and thank Jesus for dying for you on the cross? And if you want to do that, if that's you, then now's an opportunity for you to step forward, maybe not physically, but in your heart to give your life to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're a young person, just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you're a Christian. You need to trust in Jesus for yourself. You need to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. You can't rely on your parents, your upbringing. You need to trust in Jesus for your very self. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, just a moment to reflect. Who has God placed in my life, in your life? Who are those around us at work, in our family, in our street, in our class at school, or at university, or wherever we might be, that God wants us to share the good news about Jesus with? It's an opportunity just to bring them before God in prayer this morning and pray for them. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the great, amazing good news that Jesus loves us and has died for us and has risen again and that through faith in him we can be saved. Thank you for the gospel message, the great, beautiful gospel good news. 
Help us to be persistent. Help us to reach out and to be the means by which many come to faith. We pray, Lord, for our nation today and we pray, Lord, that you would move in this land and that your spirit would move and that many would come to faith in you. Help us as a church to play our part in this, in this locality, in this region. Lord, bless us, we pray. Go with us now for the rest of this day. Help us to live for you today and for the rest of this week. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.